The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith and religion as professed and practiced by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of the Second Vatican Council and the so-called New Order of Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, John. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, you're very welcome. have a couple of great emails to get to, Father. The first one here is from a viewer who says, Is it on record anywhere of any bishop that did not conform to the Novus Ordo religion begun at Vatican II? Was Archbishop Lefebvre the strongest opposition to the council who may have carried the true church through this betrayal? Or was there a bishop even more traditional than he? It seems to me there had to be at least one traditional bishop who did not betray the church at Vatican II and kept the apostolic succession intact. Thank you. Well, there are a number of points that uh, should be mentioned. Uh, first of all, um, the Novus Ordo religion did not actually start at Vatican II. Um, the another sort of religion was conceived of um, by the modernists long before Vatican II. So when St. Pius X uh, condemned the errors of the modernists with his, his encyclical, Bashendi, and we're doing a series on right. that right. on that encyclical, um, he was actually talking about the Novus Ordo as it was already in principle in the minds and in the plans of the modernists, okay? So the, uh, the Novus Ordo religion actually began um, with the, uh, the, the, the errors of the modernists, okay? Remember, we talk about belief, faith, and we talk about a religion. Religion, which is putting into practice the practice of a faith, right? And so just as we have the, the, the Catholic faith, and we have its practice, the Catholic religion, right? Well, modernism, as St. Pius X explained, is, is like the anti-religion. And so its practice is the... Uh, modernism, I'm sorry, is the anti-faith. And its practice is the anti-religion. In this case, we have the anti-Catholic religion and the anti-Catholic faith that preceded it. We call it modernism, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, it has been condemned by the Church for that length of time. It simply uh, surfaced at Vatican II. It kind of uh, reached a high water mark or erupted at Vatican II out into the open uh, through the agency of John the Twenty Third, who called the Council, and then Paul the Sixth, who took over after John the Twenty Third died. And so, um, I think it's important to, to just make the point that the Novus Ordo religion wasn't really created at Vatican II. Okay. It was actually slowly being implemented before Vatican II. Yet during the pontificate of Pius XII, there were some very significant modernist changes being made, notably to the liturgy, um, with the new rite of Holy Week, for example, implementing principles of modernism. The modernists were even boasting back then, before Vatican II, that if we can succeed in changing the, the rite of Holy Week, the Holy Week ceremonies, we can change everything. 
And so uh, I think it was Don Cabral who said that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one of the, again, the leading modernists. And so they realized that if they could begin changing the religion according to their principles, uh, they, they could actually expedite the road to Vatican II, steps toward Vatican II. So there were steps being taken toward the Novus Ordo Mass long before Vatican II took place. And um, anyway, I, I just thought we should clarify that, that point. But at, at Vatican II, were there bishops who also resisted, some more strongly than Archbishop Lefebvre? Well, Monsignor Lefebvre was certainly one of the leaders of the resistance at Vatican II. The, the resi resistance to modernism. Okay? Um, he wasn't the only one, though. He certainly wasn't the leading prelate to speak out against Vatican II's modernism. He, um, in fact, was a member of what they call the Internationalis Cetus Patrum, the International Group of Fathers. And uh, there were, I, I've heard numbers of 70, 80, perhaps even more, of the more, well, of the Catholic-minded uh, prelates, you know, bishops and, and archbishops and cardinals of Vatican II, who uh, recognized what was happening and did, did oppose what was happening, Sp spoke out against it. Uh, Archbishop Segoda Diamantina Brazil was one of the, one of the leaders of this uh, Chetus, this, this group of fathers. Um, and in the course of Vatican II, one could see uh, the development of this group. At, at first, they were caught off guard, uh, you might say. When Vatican II began, uh, one of the first steps, within the first week of Vatican II uh, actually convening, the four Shema, that is the four um, draft documents that were prepared for the fathers at Vatican II to begin to discuss were all scrapped. <clears throat> all four that had been worked on for the two previous years leading up to Vatican II. Within the first week of the meeting of Vatican II, they were all completely thrown away. And um, <clears throat> this was the work of the modernists who arrived with a plan. The, the Catholic bishops there, the ones who wanted to let me say the anti-modernist bishops, <coughs> were not really prepared. The, the Rhine flows into the Tiber is a, the story by Father Ralph Wittgen of the, the basically the, the plotting, if, he doesn't call it that necessarily, but the plotting of the modernist uh, bishops to basically take control of Vatican II. And they arrived prepared to do that. And so in the course of Vatican II, those who came to realize what was happening, uh, that the, the modernists were railroading um, the church, the bishops, right? um, uh, the council itself, with the collusion of John XXIII, and, and afterwards, with the collusion of Paul VI. That's the only reason they were able to do this, by the way, because they had the collusion of these two, of these two um, pontiffs, right? Um, 
The opposition to the modernists uh, took a while to organize and to get any strength and to get any voice at Vatican II. Uh, perhaps the moment that they had the strongest voice was with regard to the document on the, the Church in the Modern World, which was going to completely ignore the question of atheistic communism, even though the document was meant to address the problems the Church faced in the modern world. Um, but all they succeeded in doing, finally, was getting a petition with 450 names of bishops, which was then basically just put in a drawer. And it disappeared until they protested. It was then produced. Uh, the accusation was made that it arrived after the deadline. They proved it did not arrive after the deadline. So again, I mean, they were just being outmaneuvered. And uh, finally, they succeeded in this this much that as a single footnote in Gaudium et Spes, in the Church in the Modern World of Vatican II, there is mention of atheistic communism in a single footnote. And this is what all their efforts succeeded in accomplishing with regard to that one document, kind of the, the flagship document of the council, because it was called as a pastoral council by John XXIII to address the pastoral work of the Church in the Modern World, right? So uh, they were really fighting an uphill battle against uh, very highly organized, very highly motivated uh, enemies of the, of the faith and of the church with the conclusion of these two modernists, John XXIII and Paul VI. Um, Archbishop Lefebvre certainly was not the only one to go through the council and to be resisting it. As you know, Tom, the last document of the council uh, the last, I get dogmatic constitution uh, on the uh, religious liberty, they call it, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, um, was so, so bad. It was so non-Catholic, it was so anti-Catholic, that um, it was feared by the modernists that the council would go out with a, uh, a very serious, obvious rift that there are so many of the council fathers who were ready to vote against it, that they amended that document by adding to the, the beginning paragraphs a statement uh, that was acceptable to Catholics about that there's a fact, there's a, a true faith and a true, a true religion, that there's a true church, and everyone is obliged in conscience to seek it and to find it by the grace of God, and to adhere to the true faith and the true religion of the one true Savior, who is the one true Son of the one true God. I mean, all of these, all of these things we as Catholics know. And they, they <coughs> basically appended this to the beginning of the document, just to, to win the votes of the Council of Fathers who were not going to approve that document. As it turns out, as, as I recall anyway, uh, there were 70... Uh, bishops who refused to sign it, even at that. And uh, the rest all did sign 2,000, perhaps 300 uh, signatures on the document. And there were those who signed who later regretted it because they realized that, in a sense, they've been, again, even here, deceived. Um, it's sort of like, uh, to go back in history, 
the condemnation of Arianism and how the semi-Arians then uh, avoided being sent into exile by adding a little iota clandestinely in the document to change the meaning. For those who are not aware of this, we can talk about that later. But it is a fact that at the, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Arian heresy, denying the divinity of our Lord, was condemned. Arius, or Arius in Latin, and his followers were sent into exile, but there were those who upheld Arius and supported him, and supported his denial of the divinity of Christ, who uh, were, were challenged to sign the, the Nicene Creed, stating clearly the divinity of, this, of our Lord Jesus Christ as the true Son, of true God of true God, and they did so. They signed that creed, but they, on that parchment, and, that, and then that they could get away with this, putting a little flick of the pen. That's all it took to, to insert in the iota and change the Greek word homoousios, meaning that that Jesus Christ is of the same substance of the Father, meaning that he is divine. To homoousios, meaning that he is like the Father, like to him, similar to him. And with that, they can sign it. With that kind of subterfuge, you know. But you see the same kind of subterfuge going on in Vatican II. You have the same, the same kind of chicanery going on in Vatican II. And, and right from the beginning, right? Um, all the way through to the, that last document, where they actually just sort of deceived even even some of the bishops there into signing it, and they later repented of it because they saw that they had been deceived because of the contradictions contained. Monsieur Lefebvre, he said, uh, it told me that that document on religious liberty did not explicitly um, deny the Catholic faith, but it was implicit within the document. And um, in, any, in any case, uh, what, what matters is this, okay? The, the the council ended. There were a number, a sufficient, a significant number of bishops who were against what had happened there, and actually returned to their dioceses or to their religious orders or whatever, whatever wherever they went. You know, they returned home and tried to resist the implementation of the council and the spirit, so-called, of the council by by not implementing the so-called reforms that came out after it. But they were simply swamped and washed away. And eventually their voices kind of uh, were drowned out. Uh, they caved in, uh, accepted the new mass and all the rest. Uh, after the council, I think virtually the only one who continued after the council steadfastly to resist it was Monsignor Lefebvre. I think it's what came after the council that showed the resolution that was there. And after the council, I think Archbishop Lefebvre became stronger against it and became more resolute about it. You see, Archbishop Lefebvre was trained in the Vatican diplomatic corps. And being trained in diplomacy, um, his, his almost kind of his natural bent, too, also, I think. But then uh, reinforced by his training, was to try to find a way to, to reconcile things, you know, to, um, 
And I think during Vatican II, he, he, uh, he certainly was among the resistance to, the, to modernism. But uh, I think also because of his, uh, his good heart and his simplicity of, and I say simplicity not in the sense that he was, he was not simple-minded at all, but simplicity insofar as he saw things clearly as right and wrong. And um, because he was a man without guile, <clears throat> he was a man without guile. I think he took very clearly the words of our Lord to heart, be shrewd as serpents and guileless as doves. And Monsignor Lefebvre was without guile. So he, he was no babe in the woods. He was naive. But his own guilelessness, I think, um, was where he started in dealing with other people. And would take them at their word until he knew he could not. And perhaps at Vatican II, um, it, it took him some time to really see the guile that was involved there in the modernists. So I don't want to portray him as uh, naive in any way, but I just think he was, by temperament and by training, uh, the type of person who would deal with you very honestly in a very forthright way and, and trust you to be the same way. And uh, only in the course of time and with experience would he come to face the fact that this person could not be trusted. Mm -hmm. That's why I think, anyway, my own <laughs> estimation is, and by, I mean, I, I didn't know. Monsignor Lefebvre ordained me, okay? Uh, I was not a confidant of, Mar of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre by any means, okay? Uh, had a number of conversations with him in the, in the course of a couple of years that I was there in Acon. But he always impressed me as the, the way I'm portraying him. He always impressed me in being that way. And uh, I also, I'd have to add that he was a man not only without guile, but without malice. In the sense that uh, I think he always tried to give the benefit of any doubt he had. Uh, in favor of whoever, even his adversary. And never, never willed him anything but the best. He never wished anyone ill. Um, so, um, I think that during Vatican II, he came to realize more and more with the other bishops there, what he was dealing with, in his, in the, in his fellow bishops, even. That's a very hard thing to, to face, you know. And to, to realize that the depth of the depravity of, of modernism in the clergy and uh, what they were trying to do to the church, railroading the church in Vatican II. But as time went on, I think he saw it more clearly. But after Vatican II, I think, is when he really saw it very clearly, when he saw the practical consequences of Vatican II. I think he really saw the evil of it. And you'll notice, by the way, also, that there were priests who went, were priests during Vatican II. And they, they went on to accept the Novus Ordo and accept the Novus Ordo Misse, the No Order, Order of Mass, and changes that came in to a point. And all during that time that they were accepting the changes, they were becoming increasingly, first of all, uncomfortable. And after that, really, horrified by what they were seeing happening. And when they saw the practical consequences of these principles, 
They really saw it for what it was. Let's face it, we have people who read the encyclical on Pashendi and modernism, and they think, well, this is all very hypothetical and very theoretical. But, and they would come away from reading an encyclical from thinking, well, gee, you know, modernism's not good for you. But, but after they see the consequences of it, then they really understand the significance mm -hmm. of it. It's almost as though when you're reading Pashendi, you're looking at the chemical formula for arsenic. <clears throat> and somebody who knows anything about chemistry would say, eh, this can't be good for you. But they put it back on the shelf. Mm -hmm. But then when they see people taking arsenic and dying of arsenic poisoning, they realize, boy, this is bad. And that's how the implementation of modernism was after Vatican II. And I think Monsignor Lefebvre saw this is, this is extremely deadly to the faith. And so the, the, the longer the time went on after Vatican II, the more adamant he became uh, against Vatican II and against modernism, how evil it really was. So I, I'd have to say in answer to that question that I think Monseigneur Lefebvre proved himself uh, not only during, in the course of Vatican II, but especially afterwards, mm -hmm. to be the one who really picked up the, the, the standard, the battle standard of the church and carried it suffering a lot of wounds, uh, a lot of uh, vilification. He was attacked in every way. Um, he was trying to be faithful, faithful to Christ and faithful to the church. And that doesn't mean that I agree with all the decisions he made, clearly, uh, but I don't have to, uh, to admire him and to actually consider him really very saintly. Um, uh, and a great champion of the faith. And, Still offer mass for him, uh, you know, in the course of the year, and uh, still regard him as a really a spiritual father. Definitely. Okay. Uh, next email, then, Father. If possible, I would like some clarification about the establishment of convents and seminaries in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Are there any precedents in church history? Does it fall under the supply jurisdiction reasoning during times of crisis? Well, I think it certainly is covered by that. Yeah. Supply jurisdiction, we have to be careful here, because <clears throat> Canon 209 uh, in the Code uh, provides for positive probable doubt and you know, a common error. Uh, those are applications of the principle of supply jurisdiction, <clears throat> but they are not all-encompassing. I mean, it's not as though the idea of supply jurisdiction the principle of ecclesia suplet, the church supplies jurisdiction to act, right? That that is limited to those cases mentioned in, in the code of Can the old code of canon law, the real code of canon law, not the modernist one from 1983-84. Um, the, the principle of it, the church supplies jurisdiction is a much broader principle than those merely those two uh, examples given in the code. And uh, the principle uh, of that uh, is illustrated in the history of the church by the actions taken by priests, bishops. I mean, uh, th there were actions taken by uh, saintly souls whom the church actually holds up to us as examples. Um, what, what kind of authority, for example, would, would have um, uh, justified um, Father Pro in... Marxist Mexico, and I call it that because uh, 
the the federales under Calles were trying to uh, carry out the the basically the Bolshevik revolution in Mexico in the 1920s and 30s, persecuting the church. This is when the Cristeros rose up to resist them, right, to hold on to the faith. And uh, Father Pro, this young priest, would uh, travel around uh, incognito, bicycle, bringing the sacraments to the faithful people, holding, holding out against the anti-Catholic laws of would-be communist Mexico. That's what they were trying to do, you know, to basically produce a, a communist Marxist state in Mexico. So uh, what, what kind of jurisdiction would have entitled Father Pro to carry the Blessed Sacrament with him or consecrate it there in the homes and leave it there in a cupboard so that if anything were to happen to him, they would have access to the Blessed Sacrament and the patriarch of the family would then be able to ad administer the Blessed Sacrament. You know, uh, this sounds almost like a Novus Ordo thing. You know, the, the Novus Ordo would say, hey, that's great. Right. Let's do that. We should all do that. Right? But Father Pro did this in times of extreme need, right? And he wasn't condemned for doing it. But would that fall under the, uh, under the aegis of their of supplied jurisdiction? In the sense, in this sense, it would, that ordinarily that would be absolutely condemned. But uh, it wasn't in this case. It never was condemned, what he did uh, with that. There were other, other things that were done, um, not only by Father Pro, Father Miguel Pro, but by other priests in the course of history that would have, you might say, deviated from the standard practice, deviated even from canon law. But the Church herself recognizes this time. I mean, the Church herself has special rules that apply in missionary circumstances. In fact, the church even had a separate department, you might say, the Propaganda Fide, on, in, in Rome, in the curia of the, of, uh, of, uh, of the church, to govern the church in missionary countries. And uh, there were exceptions to general rules there that applied. Um, in missionary countries and uh, missionary circumstances. So the idea that the church does supply uh, jurisdiction to act uh, in circumstances which otherwise, you know, were they not so, that someone would not be authorized to act. That's a standard principle. Ecclesia supplet, the church supplies jurisdiction, we know she does. Mm -hmm. For what? For the salvation of souls. It's clear. The supreme law of the church. As it says in the Code of Canon Law, the supreme law of the church, the highest law to which all other laws yield, is the salvation of souls. What is necessary for the salvation of souls. And so, um, the uh, I don't know if I'm really answering the question that the gentleman is asking here. But, yes, I think that definitely does uh, allow for in the case of this massive apostasy, which we're filing now, um, this um, implementation of the whole program of modernism, this synthesis of heresies, which is the modernist faith, has now produced this synthesis of blasphemy and sacrilege, which is the modernist religion, <laughs> the Novus Ordo. And yes, I, I do think 
that the uh, principle Ecclesia Suplat, the church supplies, does entitle those who have the faith um, to serve the salvation of souls. And that means, yes, forming men for the priesthood and ordaining them, and even consecrating bishops, which are possible. Sure. All right, moving on then. Father is from a viewer who says uh, that he attended Mass on Good Friday mm. in the uh, diocesan uh, parish. There was a Latin Mass there. He says he was mm. following the Mass with his missile, uh, and all was as it should be, except for the prayer for the Jews during the great intercessions. The words in my missile did not correspond to those actually said. I did some research and found that the version used at the Mass I attended was that of Benedict XVI, and the version mm. in my Missal was that of John XXIII. However, I also found that Pope Pius XII had also made changes, omitting the word perfidious, as it was claimed that the Latin rather means unbelieving. Father Jenkins, could you please shed some light on this matter? And he also says uh, that... I've heard as of this as of this year, for a duration of three years, Francis has granted the Fraternity of St. Peter permission to use the pre-1955 <coughs> Missal for Holy Week, with the catch that they must use Benedict's revised prayer for the Jews. Mm -hmm. Well, to start with the second part, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, if you don't mind. <clears throat> uh, Francis, just recently, and I say recently, within the last couple of months or so, has begun to um, make some very Catholic sounds. Um, yes, this, this permission given to the Fraternity of St. Peter to use the pre-1955 uh, changes, to use the old Holy Week ceremonies, was very interesting and puzzling at first. Um, now, since then, of course, we've with, with all of the sexual abuse crisis hitting and <clears throat> Francis being accused of being in on the caper, right? Covering it up. <clears throat> Says he, he's not going to say anything about it and then talking about it incessantly <laughs> about how those who are accusing are the bad guys and they're doing the work of the devil. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. His reaction to all of this is very interesting because his reaction to cases like this, what he's kind of called on the spot uh, or called on the carpet <clears throat> or caught doing something really bad, okay, uh, are to kind of pull the Catholic card out. Um, now, now, since this, this abuse has come out, and he's identified the devil as those who <clears throat> uncover the abuse, right, and actually are threatening to uncover the covering of the abuse, to, to expose the fact that it was not only being done, but it was being covered up. <clears throat> by people in high places, such as Francis, okay? <clears throat> now the thing is, pray the rosary. Pray the rosary. Pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. Pray against the devil. But he's already said the devil is Archbishop Bigano and those who would expose the evil. That They're the ones who are the devil. So pray against them. Pray against the accusers. Pray against the exposers of these evil things we've been doing. Um, and, you know, all of this is calculated <clears throat> to deceive. I'm not as charitable as Archbishop Lefebvre, I guess. But I, I believe all of this is calculated to deceive your poor Catholic who's still clinging, trying to cling to the faith in the Novus Ordo. And they're horrified by what they've seen. And now they hear 
the Holy Father is saying, pray the rosary. And that's very reassuring. Okay, he still wants us to pray the rosary. And pray the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel. Oh, this is so Catholic. This is so traditional. And this reassures us now uh, that the Holy Father is on the right track, despite all of this other stuff that's going on. <clears throat> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <clears throat> and just take out your rosary. Start praying the rosaries. And uh, by the way, pray the rosaries against those who would... On, uh, reveal what I'm what I've been doing all this time, um, and I think I believe it is the same thing. I believe everything he does is very calculated. I'm sorry, I don't think it's it's rash judgment to say that. I don't think that's it's even rash suspicion to say that. Um, <clears throat> the permission given to the to fraternity of Saint Peter to use the pre 1955 Holy Week ceremonies. I personally see <clears throat> as basically undercutting the Society of St. Pius X. Right. The Society of St. Pius X follows the 1962 liturgy, more or less. Okay, They say they do, <coughs> but they really don't. Okay, They do things that are uh, not in the <clears throat> 1962 liturgy. Okay, <clears throat> They were even asked... Why do you do these things that are not in the 1960 liturgy of John the 23rd? At the same time, you're claiming that you follow the authority of John the 23rd and so on in using the 1962 liturgy. And I've heard the answer is, well, if we didn't do those things, then the people who come to our masses would be upset. And so we have to do those things because they're the more traditional things that we can't do without right now. Which again, I, I don't, I don't see that as being honest to do that. Um, I think if they were going to be honest, they should say, "Look, we 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 follow the 1962 liturgy, but then we really don't." <clears throat> there are some things we do differently against the 1962 liturgy because we feel we have to, because most people wouldn't like it if we, and they'd be upset and questioning if we didn't do it. I think they should honestly explain this to people. <clears throat> but they do use the 1962, the modern Holy Week rite. And by giving the permission to use the pre-1955 rite, the traditional rite of Holy Week, I think Francis realizes there are a lot of followers of the, tra the traditional people out there who want the traditional Latin Mass, who really would much rather go to the 19... would rather go to the traditional Holy Week rite than to this revised... Mm -hmm. Right, that actually did come out under Pius XII. It's true. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so I think by giving by giving the fraternity of Saint Peter, who is which is under his control, right? It is under his thumb. It is created by his um, by mandate and can be uncreated at any moment, right? Um, by giving them the right, the authority, or the approval to use the nineteen fifty five prior to 1955, Holy Week ceremony. That is to say, the more traditional ceremony. I think he's putting these Latin Mass people in a position to say, look, I can go to Pius X, which is really not under Francis right now, <clears throat> even though they say they want to be. They're not. <clears throat> they're not recognized by Francis, really, officially. I can go to them, and I can have the 1962 changed right. But I can go to the fraternity in St. Peter, which is under Francis, and exists <clears throat> at his pleasure, and have the, the traditional 
Holyweek, right? Really, that's what I want. I want the traditional. So I'll go to the FSFC. I'll go to the fraternity of St. Peter <clears throat> rather than to Pius X for Holy Week. I think he sees this as a bit of a coup if it plays out the way I think he hopes that it's going to siphon off those who really want the traditional ceremonies back into the Novus Ordo fold, as it were, under the fraternity of St. Peter. Um, it's the only rational explanation I could find why Francis would do that. At the same time, he's continually not just knocking, but he's condemning traditional Catholicism, saying there's something mentally wrong with it, especially with young people who want tradition. He's continually doing this. And then he turns around and does something like this. Now, one might just argue, well, he's a modernist, and that's what modernists do, right? They, they're constantly... I mean, one, one day they'll go and, and then they'll go to a Jewish synagogue and um, refer to Jesus a couple of times and never call him Christ, as John Paul II did. Right? But the next day they can be holding a rosary and how, talk about the rosary. The next day they can actually talk about the glories of Buddhism and Hinduism, right? And say how much we have to learn from Lutheranism. And then they can, they can say something about, let's, let's all pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. Uh, but a modernist, remember, has all these different personalities. <clears throat> and if he happens to be wearing his Catholic pants on that particular day, or his Catholic hat on that particular day, as a believer, he can actually talk like a Catholic. But then he gets, let's say... Uh, in the classroom where he's teaching at a Jesuit, Jesuit university, he's teaching church history or theology. And now he's talking as a theologian, but as a modernist theologian. So he can deny in the classroom what he was preaching in the church. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> this is the very nature of modernism, and this is the very character of modernists. <clears throat> so you, you, have a, you, know, you have to try to explain how can they contradict themselves. Uh, it's very confusing, and as St. Pius X said, they, they, they present their ideas in a very confused way in order to confuse people. And so there are people who find Francis' behavior very confusing, and I would just say, well, this is perfectly consonant with modernism. <clears throat> Read Pescendi. There are others who don't find him confusing at all, who recognize immediately what he's doing. Right, but then they understand modernism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the first part of the question, I think I buried here, Tom. And I'm sorry. Um, uh, could you could you read that again one more time? Sure. Uh, let's see. He was, went to the uh, mass at Good Friday at his uh, local diocesan parish. It was a Latin mass there. He oh said yes. Okay. I followed the entire mass with my missile, which is an SSPX missile mm -hmm. from the Angelus Press. Always as it should be, except for the prayer for the Jews during the great intercessions. The words of my missile did not correspond to those actually said. Did some research and found that the version used at the Mass I attended was that of Benedict XVI, and the version of my missile was that of John Twenty-Third. However, I also found that Pope Pius XII had also made changes, omitting the word perfidious, mm. as it was claimed that the Latin perfidus meant, rather meant unbelieving. Mm. So he said he went to a local church, a local diocesan church, parish church, <clears throat> and they were having the Latin ceremonies. Yes, sir. And he saw that what they were saying, what, what the clergyman was saying there, did not correspond to what he had in his 
SSPX-1962 missile. Correct. Right? <clears throat> but then he found out that what they were doing in the church was actually the Benedict XVI, sort of Simorum Pontificum. <clears throat> okay, rights. Um, so the, they wouldn't correspond to the 1962 missile because they had been changed further in the meantime, even though they were in Latin, okay? And it's interesting that even though they were in Latin, he was following the Latin uh, that was he was hearing in front of him, the Latin as he had it in his missile, and then researched what the Latin formally said. So, you know, I, I applaud this gentleman in this much that he actually realized that whether it's in Latin or not is not the key to making it Catholic. <laughs> Something, it can be in Latin and be very bad. I mean, look, even satanic rites use Latin, right? And they use it as a mockery. The Harry Potter movies, all the spells are pronounced in Latin, you know. Latin, again, is a language, and it is, it is a sacred language when it is used for sacred things, right? But uh, the devil, again, wants to, wants to take sacred things and abuse them. And he will, he will adulterate the Latin to, to use it to do evil things. Um, so it's not the Latin that is, that is, I mean, the Latin, don't get me wrong, Latin is important, okay? But the fact, even the New Mass originally, the New Mass originally came out of Latin. Uh, it's still the New Mass, and it's still wrong, Latin or not. Right? <laughs> so this man discovered that. And, um, but if he's asking for an explanation, uh, well, um, I'm just, again, in my usual brief, concise manner, it's just saying, um, <laughs> Remember, the modernists were saying, um, even in the 1930s and 40s, if we can change the rite of Holy Week, the rites of Holy Week, that is the church's ceremonies of Holy Week, then we can change anything, because they were the most sacred of all. And if these fall to the modernist acts, and we get to revise them in our, in our own modernist fashion, we can change everything. And so they set about applying their energies to accomplishing that. And they actually did in uh, the early to mid-50s uh, move ahead and introduce the re what they call the Restored Rite of Holy Week. Again, restored, pretending to bring the Holy Week ceremonies back to earlier traditional forms, right? That's what they were claiming. And all of this in line with the modernist idea of let's create or let's recreate the primitive church, right? Let's recreate the primitive liturgy. Uh, it was a sham and a fraud. And Pope Pius XII, of all people, said so in Mystici Corporis. He said this archaeologism where they want to try to dig and, and dig and, and bring up primitive things from the past of the church and restore them. He said that's, that's not possible. That's, that's not Catholic to do that that way. Uh, and he recognized it was simply a ploy of the modernists, which is really peculiar because it was still under Pius XII that they managed to carry this off. And uh, people are at pains to express how Pius XII could condemn this in the 1940s. I think it was 47, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe not. It was in the 40s. Condemned the idea of archaeologism in the liturgy. And then within maybe five or six years, begin... A, approving it, and ultimately uh, signing off on this, uh, restored right, so-called restored right of Holy Week. There are all kinds of theories. 
there are those who know what happened, I suppose, who might even still be alive in the world. I don't know, but nonetheless, the fact is, um, Pius twelfth was very ill. He was a very, very sick man. There was even talk about him being poisoned. Uh, there's evidence that Pius XI was poisoned to death. It could have, it could have happened. Pius XII could, could have been poisoned. But he was a very sick man and very frail. And uh, I can see the modernists could have taken advantage of him. No doubt about it. Sure. In any case, the fact is, they came out with their restored right of Holy Week, which he'd already uh, condemned in principle. Okay, And it came out under his under his name. Um, and sure enough, the next step was to begin uh, changing everything. Okay, And uh, then with all of the successive changes, they kept changing and changing that. Um, this gentleman mentioned the change, uh, the dropping of the adjective perfidious Jews. Okay, uh, That was in the Latin ceremony uh, about the perfidious Jews. In the so-called bidding prayers on Good Friday, uh, after uh, the priest finishes reading the Passion of Our Lord according to St. John. Then he goes to uh, the bidding prayers, which asks God's mercy and blessing, right? Uh, for uh, the, the Catholic clergy, the, the hierarchy, the faithful, and, uh, you know, non-believers in various categories, pagans and so on. And among those are the Jews. The church is praying for them. And in the course of that prayer to God, it actually refers to them in Latin as the perfidious Jews. <clears throat> and here it is referring to the Jews who are the enemies of Christ, who are the avowed enemies of Christ, who hate Christ. And uh, the church is praying for them, that they will be converted. Right? And uh, But that was thought to be, in the early days of ecumenism, thought to be, um, shall we say, somewhat offensive to refer to their faithlessness because it had the sense of faithless that they did not have faith in Christ that's what it meant exactly the same sense that you'd call somebody in, in, in infidel infidel means literally a non-believer okay so uh, I mean words have connotations okay so to call somebody uh, a non-believer is one thing to call them an infidel is another and to call them perfidious has another connotation, okay? Um, in Latin, the sense of being uh, not only a non-believer, but actually being an enemy of the faith is carried in the, in the sense of perfidious. And that's why the church used it that way, because it actually applies. Um, <clears throat> in the interests of ecumenism, early on, they made that word go away. They excised that word. And it was just also, by the way, as part of the ceremony, when the priest came to that prayer, he did not do something he did with all the other prayers. He did not genuflect in adoration. Because with each one of those biddings, the prayers of bidding God's mercy, there is oremus uh, flectamus genua levate. Let us pray let us bend the knee, meaning let us genuflect or, or adore. It was an act of adoration to God. Uh, levate, rise up, right? And then the oration would be signed. When it came to the, the prayer for the Jews, the perfidious Jews, the priest did not do that. There was no 
Flactamus Genoa, Levate, let us adore, but that was to recall the fact that the, the, the Jews who were condemning Christ uh, mocked him by genuflecting, by prostrating themselves, by crowning him with thorns and giving him a reed as a scepter, which they then hit him over the head to drive the, the thorns deeper into his skull. I mean, all of these acts of, uh, of pretended honor to him were, were, were mockeries, blasphemous, sacrilegious mockeries, mockeries. And so the church would not do that for that prayer. And, uh, of course, all of that had to be undone by ecumenism. Starting with the word perfidious and removing that from the prayer, that was the first step in the direction that everything now would have to be changed. And um, now, now the Novus Ordo with Etate uh, Nostro is saying that the Jews have a separate agreement with God, even apart from Christ. And they don't need Christ to be saved. They, they can be saved just because they're children of Abraham. This is a heresy. This is a denial of the Catholic faith. But this is, this is what we're dealing with now in the modernist ecumenism of the day, that basically all religious experiences are true, and they're all real, and all religions that come out of them, therefore, have truth, and they must all be respected, and they each have something positive to teach the others. That we could all learn from each other's religions, right? It all starts with modernism. Right. What this gentleman experienced in, in his Novus Ordo Church that day was simply the playing out of this entire history. Right. Well, we'll end with that, Father. We uh, went a bit over our desired time limit as usual, but well, uh, it's quite a quite a chore to keep up. I with, guess it's uh, traditional for us to go. Over <laughs> there you go. Um, well, thank you, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. We uh, we checked a few emails off the list at least, so we're uh, we're making progress. Well, so. I think I think there is progress, Tom. I, mm -hmm. I think the viewership is going up, and I appreciate that. And I think the number of emails you're receiving evidently is growing too. Also going up. Yes. Appreciate the patience of people very much. Um, so, uh, especially if you if you send questions in, if they're simple, straightforward. And um, that multiple questions, it makes it a bit easier for us to address them here. Um, I know that you, uh, Tom, made an excellent suggestion that we simply sit down off camera and respond to the emails directly. And uh, we're going to be doing that. That's right? fine. Um, I thank you for your, your support of the program. Of course, Tom, your good efforts here. Thank you, Father. And, um, but I also thank people who actually sent some financial support to the program, too. It's a great help. Definitely. It is needed and much appreciated. And uh, I do offer Mass uh, each month for the intentions of all of our supporters. So yep. You are included in that. There you go. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.